One of the great changes that occurs in the life of someone who is converted to Christ is that they come to to love the Lord. They love Him, which is quite remarkable considering the fact that prior to our conversion, we not only didn't love God, we hated Him. We despised Him. We had contempt for Him. And I say that because that is exactly what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, because the mind set on the flesh, meaning an unbeliever's mind, that's what he's talking about, the mind set on the flesh, the mind of an unbeliever, is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, most of us are not aware that we hate God. We aren't conscious of any animosity towards Him. In fact, Prior to our salvation, we don't even think about him. We we don't even care. It never crosses our minds. We're too busy living for ourselves. But nevertheless, we demonstrate our disdain for him by the way that we do live with total indifference towards him as if he just didn't exist, as if he was completely irrelevant and, and we had complete disregard for his word, the Bible. But all of this enmity changes when you come to faith in Christ because along with salvation, God gives us a new heart and he does it in the form of a new nature. Peter calls it a divine nature. And this new nature no longer hates God. It it is the real us now and it now loves him and desires to obey him. The New Testament is filled with statements about how believers in Christ love the Lord. Perhaps the most well-known one, and we often don't think about this, making a statement about loving him, is this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, and we know that he's sovereign. We not often camp on that, and we, we use that verse to speak of God's sovereignty. But the verse says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. Meaning all believers, this is not talking about a certain class of Christian. These are all believers. We love God. So the Bible is very clear. Unbelievers do not love God because they have a fallen sinful nature that is opposed to him. While believers in Christ do love God because their hearts have been transformed. This morning, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have come to a fascinating passage of Scripture in which we're given a very clear illustration, a very clear example of the difference between a believer in Christ who loves him and an unbeliever who does not love him but only has contempt for him. The passage I'm referring to is Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, 
he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, as I said, this is a fascinating passage of scripture. It is a unique passage of scripture in that it is not found anywhere else but here in the gospel of Luke. And I say that Because many people assume that the anointing of Jesus' feet with expensive perfume by Mary, who was the sister of Lazarus, which is recorded in the other three gospel accounts, is the same one recorded here by Luke. That's just an assumption that people often make, but it's incorrect. And there are several reasons we know this is not the same. For one thing, Mary's anointing took place in the town of Bethany. That was in the region of Judea, not far from Jerusalem. While the anointing that Luke writes about here took place somewhere in the northern area of Israel in the Galilee. Also, Mary's anointing took place during the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry, just prior to his arrest and crucifixion, while Luke's anointing took place at an earlier time in Christ's ministry. In addition, Mary's anointing took place in the home of a man named Simon the leper, someone who obviously had been healed of leprosy by Jesus, while Luke's anointing took place in the home of a Pharisee whose name also was Simon, which was a very common name in those days, but he was not Simon the leper, it was Simon the Pharisee. However, what's most significant about these two anointings is that their stories are meant to convey two very different messages. The primary message of Mary's anointing The anointing of Jesus is to teach how indignant the Lord's disciples were to her act of extreme devotion because they felt that this perfume should have been sold with the proceeds going to help the poor. But Jesus said they were wrong because what Mary did, he said, was a good thing because what she did, she did in order to prepare his body for burial, which was soon to come. However, the anointing of Jesus that Luke tells us about has nothing to do with the poor, Nothing to do with preparing Christ's body for burial. Luke's anointing is about teaching us one primary lesson, which is that those who have been forgiven of their sins love Jesus. And they demonstrate their love for him by the way that they treat him. And those who have never been forgiven of their sins have contempt for him, and they demonstrate their contempt for him in the way that they treat him. You see, in these verses, Luke presents a contrast. It's a contrast between an unnamed woman. This is not Mary. This is an unnamed woman. We don't know her name, but we presume that she was a prostitute. And the contrast between her and a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And the contrast between this prostitute and Simon is that she 
had been forgiven of all of her sins and therefore she loved the Lord for doing this while self-righteous Pharisee Simon has never been forgiven and therefore he has nothing but disrespect, disregard, and dishonor for Jesus. Now, what led to this story of contrast is that this Pharisee, Simon, he invited Jesus to his home for dinner. Now, that wasn't really unusual in that day. In the culture of that day, it was a rather common thing to invite a visiting rabbi to one's home for the purpose of discussing social events, political events, theological issues. However, in light of the fact that Simon was a Pharisee and the Pharisees had already stated their disapproval of Jesus, it's obvious that Simon didn't invite Jesus over with good intentions. See, the Pharisees had already decided that Jesus was not the Messiah, having concluded earlier that he was a blasphemer. Why? Because he claimed to forgive people's sins, something that only God can do. Notice what we read back in Luke chapter 5, verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, They had already made up their minds, and in light of the Pharisees' rejection of him as a blasphemer who claims to forgive sins, Simon no doubt invited Jesus over to his home to expose him as a fraud, to damage his reputation. One Bible teacher explained Simon's motives for inviting Jesus to his home with these words. He said, having already reached a conclusion regarding Jesus, they were busy accumulating evidence against him. This Pharisee's invitation to Jesus was part of that evidence-gathering process. No self-respecting Pharisee would invite any association with a blasphemer except to do him harm. So I think he's absolutely correct. There you have it. That's the issue. Simon and his Pharisee colleagues rejected Jesus on the basis that he forgives sins. So what does Jesus do? Knowing this, he still accepts Simon's invitation to his home for dinner so that he can demonstrate to Simon that not only does he have the authority to forgive someone's sins, but that when their sins are forgiven, they evidence that they have been forgiven by showing him the most loving gratitude possible. See, our Lord, knowing full well Simon's sinister motives for inviting him to dinner, he graciously accepts his invitation in order to show this man God's mercy in forgiving sinners so that Simon, seeing how unloving and how unkind and how disrespectful he is to Jesus, that he would be convicted of his sin. And his conviction would cause him to turn to Christ because he knew that he needed salvation. He knew that he needed his sins forgiven. I mean, that was the objective. Now, whether or not Simon ever did turn to Christ, we're not told. But that night, this man... This self-righteous Pharisee certainly saw God's grace in action by the way this forgiven prostitute demonstrated her love for Christ. And so the message here, folks, it's a study in contrast. Contrast between this forgiven woman who loved Jesus for what he had done and this self-righteous Pharisee whose only interest in Jesus is to bring him harm. And all of this, meaning the events of that night, was for the purpose of showing Simon this lost, self-righteous sinner that Christ indeed forgives sinners. And the way that Luke unfolds the message of the passage 
is that he first shows us the adoration and the, the gratitude of this forgiven woman for Jesus. Next, he shows us the lack of honor and respect that Simon had for Jesus because he had never been forgiven. And then finally, Luke tells us Christ's explanation of these two contrasting responses to him. So we begin where the passage begins by seeing the adoration and gratitude of a forgiven woman. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, as Luke sets the scene for us, and that's exactly what he's doing, he's setting the scene for us, he begins by telling us that one of the Pharisees, who we later learn, although I have told you, but you later learn in the passage, this man is named Simon. He invited Jesus over to his home to have dinner with him. Now, as I've already pointed out, Simon did not invite Jesus over because he was interested in discussing the issues of the day with him or even because he respected him as an esteemed rabbi. No, having already decided that Jesus was a fraud, was a blasphemer, it's very likely that Simon now invited the Lord to his home for the express purpose of dispelling a very popular view that had been going around that Jesus was a prophet. A prophet. And I say that because... If you'll recall, just prior to this dinner invitation, Jesus had raised a widow's son back to life. Remember the widow of Nain? We studied about her. And she had lost her only son. Jesus interrupted the funeral, raised the boy back to life. And those who witnessed this miracle, the people of Nain who saw this, rather than concluding that Jesus is God, which really was the point of the miracle, they concluded that he was merely a prophet whom God had sent to visit his people. And that's what they reported. That's what we reported about him everywhere they went. I won't take the time to read it, but that's exactly what we read in Luke chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Wherever they went, they kept telling people that there is a new prophet by the name of Jesus. He's been sent by God. Now, it's very likely then that Simon, upon hearing all these reports circulating about Jesus being a prophet, invited the Lord to his home in order to demonstrate that Jesus wasn't a prophet. That seems to be exactly the situation. I say that because when a woman, prostitute, begins to anoint Christ's feet with perfume, notice how Simon reacts. He reacts by concluding in verse 39 that Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet. Verse 39... Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. So he's thinking if this man really was a prophet, like everybody says, then he would know what's going on. Seems pretty clear that Simon, having concluded that Jesus was a blasphemer, had invited him over to his home for dinner that night to further harm his reputation by proving that he was not a prophet. Yet Jesus, knowing the contempt that Simon, like all the Pharisees, had for him, he accepts this dinner invitation for the purpose of teaching the man, as I said, he needs to have his sins forgiven. And the lesson begins with what we read happens next as Jesus comes to the dinner table, verses 37 and 38. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping 
she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now the opening words of verse 37 read this way in the Greek text, and behold, it might not come through in your English translations, but it's and behold indicating that Luke is calling our attention to something that's important. He's telling us, look, this is startling, this is unusual, pay attention. He tells us that there was a woman in the city, wherever that city was, whatever that city was, where Jesus was dining with Simon the Pharisee, and she was a sinner, which is usually used in the New Testament in the context of a woman to speak of a professional prostitute. And when this woman learned that Jesus was having dinner at Simon's house, she entered the house so that she was standing right behind Jesus as he ate at the dinner table. Now you may wonder, how is this even possible? How does something like this happen? She certainly wasn't invited to the dinner because a Pharisee would never willingly let a known prostitute into his home. Well, here's how Bible teacher Kent Hughes explains how this happened. He writes, in that day, the homes of well-to-do people were built around central courtyards in which formal meals were served. So just kind of visualize this. The guests reclined on the left elbow on low-lying couches, eating with the right hand One's feet would extend away from the table in keeping with the belief that the feet were unclean and offensive by nature. At such occasions, the doors of the homes were kept open and the uninvited townspeople were free to wander in to observe the conversation. Typically, there was a great deal of coming and going by onlookers. So I think that helps to understand. You can picture the scene in your your mind. People are coming and going. The Lord is not sitting at a table on a chair. He would have been reclining on his left elbow, his feet extended from him, taking the food with his right hand. That was just how they did it then. So apparently with so many people coming and going that night, this woman then, she was able to walk quietly into Simon's house without anybody noticing her. But though she walked quietly into the house, she didn't come alone. Luke tells us that she brought an alabaster vial of perfume with her. And carrying this bottle of perfume, which no doubt was very costly and very expensive, and something she had used in her work as a prostitute, she proceeded to walk to where the Lord was reclining at the table and standing right behind him at his feet, which were extended, as I said, out from the table. She started weeping with her tears falling on the feet of Jesus. Now, Understand this wasn't a few droplets of moisture filling her eyes. Not at all. This was a bursting forth of tears because the Greek word for wet means to rain. So raining tears, pouring forth a gush of tears upon the Lord's feet. This woman did what was really unheard of and considered morally indecent in Jewish society. She let down her hair in public something a woman was only to do privately in the presence of her husband. And she then proceeded to wash and to wipe the feet of Jesus with her long hair while at the same time repeatedly kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume that she had had brought. Now obviously this woman was just overcome with emotion, raw emotion, so that she's, she's unconcerned with what others observing her 
thought about her action. She's completely oblivious to the opinions of others in the house who certainly would consider her behavior shameful, embarrassing. But just being in the presence of Jesus, it just caused her to unashamedly express her gratitude to him by washing, by kissing, by anointing his feet. She really didn't care what anybody else thought. And why was she so grateful to Jesus? Well, as we learn later in the passage, she apparently had had some kind of a previous interaction with the Lord, which resulted in him forgiving her sins. And she just wanted to express her love and adoration and gratitude for him. And the only way she knew how to do this was to pour perfume on his feet. But being overwhelmed by seeing him, her reign of tears caused her to spontaneously wash and kiss his feet. You see, my friends, this has someone who knows the depth of their sin, but who also knows that as deep as their sin has been, Christ has forgiven their sins. This is how a person like that responds to him. They show extravagant, lavish gratitude by honoring him with their affection without caring one iota what anybody else thinks about what they're doing. In the case of this woman, she had been living with such enormous guilt for her immoral life. She knew that her sexual activity was wrong. Being Jewish, she certainly knew that the Mosaic law forbid fornication and adultery. She knew that she was condemned by her fellow Jews, that they, they all looked down upon her. And she had lived with this burden of guilt and embarrassment until she had heard Jesus speak. And she believed on him. And he lifted this crushing weight of sin by forgiving her of all of her sins. In fact, chronologically, this incident in Luke chapter 7 immediately follows the Lord's great invitation at the end of Matthew chapter 11, where we read this starting in verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's very likely that this woman was in the crowd that day and heard Jesus give this great invitation and she responded to this invitation. She came to him, she believed on him and she experienced the forgiveness of her sins and she had rest for her weary, heavy laden soul. And immediately what happened? She fell in love with Christ and so now she just threw caution to the wind she expressed her gratitude for what he had done for her without any restraints whatsoever now the question is do you do that do you do that do you love Jesus if you know him do you love him of course you do if you know him you have to love him but do you love him in a way that expresses gratitude without restraints because if you love him, then you should be demonstrating your love for him by showing him the kind of gratitude, at least in principle, that this woman showed him. That's what forgiven sinners are supposed to do. They're supposed to express their love for Christ in very tangible ways by showing him gratitude. And how do we do this? Well, we do this in any number of ways. We do this by the way we live. We are to live in obedience to the Word of God. The Word of God is to mean something in our lives. When we read Scripture and we read a command, we're supposed to do it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
We do this, we show him gratitude by sacrificing for him, giving him, giving him what? Giving him our, our time to do what he wants us to do, serve him, our energy. We all have energy, some more than others, but whatever we have, we're to give for his glory. We're to give our financial resources. What you give in the offering is to be a love gift. We show him our gratitude by adoring him, by worshiping him. So I ask you again, do you do that? Do you ever just unashamedly tell the Lord out of the blue that, Lord, I I, I love you. I just love you. And say it when nobody else is around so you can't impress them. I just love you, Lord. Do you ever just start singing praises to him when you're alone and not in church? When you give your offering, is it a sacrificial gift to him or is it a routine 10% tithe that you mechanically do this without giving any thought to it. I guarantee you that this woman, when she poured out that expensive perfume, wasn't thinking, I just have to give 10%, not 11, not 9, 10%. She didn't think about that. It was just a love gift. She was just extravagant, poured out this expensive perfume because she knew that Christ had been so extravagant in his forgiveness of her sins. He lavished upon her, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, forgiveness. Are you serving him in some ministry? That's a way to demonstrate your love. See, these are just some of the ways that we show our gratitude towards him because he has forgiven us. We're not only to think about his forgiveness when we have the Lord's Supper. This is to be part of our lives, our daily lives, to think about what he's done in our life and to respond, react by loving him. This, though, is not what unbelievers do. And as Luke proceeds to tell us more about what happened at the dinner party, he moves on from telling us how this forgiven woman responded to Jesus to telling us how Simon the Pharisee, who had not experienced Christ's forgiveness, how he responded to Jesus. So in contrast to her response, which was one of love, adoration, Simon's response was to dishonor Jesus. Notice verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. Now seeing this display of just raw emotion on the part of this immoral woman, Simon, the Lord's host, he immediately concludes in his mind that Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet. Why? Because his reasoning was, well, if he was a prophet, then he would certainly have known what kind of a woman this was who was touching him, that she was a prostitute. See, Simon reasoned that if Jesus was a true prophet sent from God, God would have revealed to him what this woman was like in her character, something that everybody else in the room knew. So Jesus, he thought, must not be a prophet. As John MacArthur points out in his commentary on Luke, the Pharisees was was both disgusted by the scene he was witnessing and at the same time satisfied because it confirmed his belief that Jesus' ignorance of this woman's wickedness was proof that he was not a true prophet. So Simon never actually verbalized his belief that Jesus wasn't a prophet. He just inwardly thought about it. But ironically, Jesus, being God, knows exactly what Simon's thinking because Simon, without saying a word, Jesus knows what's on his mind. So Jesus speaks to him addressing his thoughts and giving him a lesson on love and forgiveness. Verses 40 through 43. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher, or say it, rabbi. 
A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Now proving that he was indeed a prophet and really more than a prophet, because he knew exactly what Simon had been thinking, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. In other words, Simon, I I have to tell you something. I have something important for you to hear. And Simon, his curiosity aroused, asked Jesus to say what's on his mind. So Jesus gives him a parable. It's It's a little story about a man who loaned people money and two individuals who owed this man money. Now, one debtor owed him 500 denarii, which was about a year and a half's wages for the average person. And the other debtor owed him 50 denarii, which would take a little under two months to pay off. So one individual's debt was 10 times larger than the other one's debt. But regardless of the differences in the amount of money these two individuals owed this money lender, both debtors were in the same boat. They were both unable to pay their debts. It didn't matter how much it was, they couldn't pay it. So what did the money lender do? Well, Jesus said... He graciously forgave them both. In other words, this moneylender freely forgave their debts with no strings attached. Out of a heart of compassion, he told these two debtors that their debts were canceled. They owed him absolutely nothing. Now, obviously, the moneylender in this story represents God, who graciously forgives all who place their faith in Christ, because Christ has already paid for their sins so they can be forgiven. And the two debtors represent sinners who have been forgiven by God. But listen, the point that Jesus was making in this parable isn't simply that God forgives sinners. That's part of it. But rather, he said, which sinner will love him more? The one who had, who had more sins forgiven or the one who had less sins forgiven? And Jesus makes his point very clear by directly asking Simon in verse 42, so which of them will love him more? And Simon, of course, being put on the spot by Jesus, feeling a bit, uh, I would assume, trapped, answers rather grudgingly with an air of of indifference, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you've judged correctly. I mean, how could Simon not get the point? you'd have to be pretty stupid to not get the point here. Obviously, the one who was forgiven the most will love the one who forgave him the most. He was a smart man. Pharisees were smart. They were wicked, but they were smart. But with Simon having admitted this unmistakable truth, Jesus now applies this truth both to the woman who wiped and kissed and anointed his feet with perfume and to Simon who did absolutely nothing to show Jesus any love though he was his host for the evening and he was supposed to show him common courtesy notice what we read in verses 44 through 46 turning towards the woman he said to Simon do you see this woman so he points to the woman but he's speaking to Simon I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet she's wet my feet though with her tears and wiped them with her hair You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Now Luke tells us that turning to this woman, but speaking to Simon, Jesus contrasted Simon's actions towards him with this woman's actions. Jesus told Simon that in spite of inviting him to his house, he failed to treat him as an honored guest. But this woman 
a forgiven prostitute showed deep, unashamed love and gratitude towards him. Jesus said that while Simon offered him no water to wash his feet, which was a common courtesy and a custom of that day due to the muddy and dusty roads in Israel, everybody had their feet washed. This forgiven prostitute, though, she wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It was unheard of that a a host wouldn't provide water to wash a guest's feet, but that's what Simon did. Jesus said that while Simon failed failed to welcome him into his home with a customary kiss of greeting, which is what they did back then, this forgiven prostitute repeatedly kissed his feet. Jesus said that while Simon failed to anoint his head with cheap olive oil, this forgiven prostitute anointed his feet with expensive perfume. Listen closely. The point that our Lord wants Simon to understand isn't that he has less sins to be forgiven than this woman. Jesus is not telling Simon that this prostitute was 10 times more sinful than he was. No doubt Simon being a Pharisee and therefore a self-righteous moralist didn't think he had any sins that needed to be forgiven. Though inwardly he was just as guilty and sinful as this prostitute was. But what the Lord wants him to see is that his poor treatment of him reveals that he's never been forgiven of his sins. Because if he had been forgiven, then he would have expressed love and affection and gratitude towards him just like this woman had done. She did these things because she knew that her many sins had been forgiven by Jesus, while Simon, being just as sinful in his heart as she was, had no awareness of his sins. And consequently, he had never been forgiven by Jesus. You have to know you're a sinner before you come to him for forgiveness. And thus the reason Simon showed no love for him. He treated him with disrespect, dishonor. You see, folks, unsaved people like Simon the Pharisee have absolutely no love, no affection for God, no warmth towards Jesus. They, they may say things like, well, I've always loved God, but that's not true. They have not. They may have always loved the God they created in their own minds, but not the God of the Bible. They have no love for him, no warmth towards Jesus, because they have never experienced his grace and mercy in salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. So their hearts remain cold and indifferent towards him, just the way we were before we were believers. And what's more, Simon was a religious man, a man who was devout in his observance of the Mosaic law, a man who prided himself on keeping the traditions, the rules, the rituals, but had no understanding of his sinful heart, religious but lost, no understanding of God's grace and mercy and forgiving sinners who humble themselves by trusting Christ for salvation. Simon's problem is that he didn't understand how sinful he was. So consequently, he felt morally superior to this prostitute, and he looked down upon her as just a low-life prostitute. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Luke, tells the story of the time that the Countess of Huntington, a very famous Christian in church history, a devout Christian, a contemporary of George Whitfield, she was actually a huge financial supporter of George Whitfield, once invited a duchess to hear Whitfield preach. Of course, this is in England, this is in the 1700s. So she invites this duchess to hear Whitfield preach. She is the Countess of Huntington, a very prominent lady in social circles. And here was the duchess, her written reply she sent to the countess after hearing George Whitfield preached. 
She said, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. To which Kent Hughes adds his own commentary with these words, only a twitty duchess, I love that word twitty, I had to look it up, what does that even mean? Only a twitty duchess raised in the insular, racist, upper class of old England would say such a thing. But thousands have used such thinking to avoid applying Christ's teaching on them, to themselves. Good people just don't need that kind of religion. Grace is for big time sinners, not for people like me. I don't need it. And that's exactly Simon the Pharisee's attitude. Proud, condescending, self-righteous, never thinking he was guilty before a perfectly holy God, just like everybody else, because he thought he was better than others. He thought he was a, a good person whose positives far outweighed any, any negatives. How wrong Simon the Pharisee was. Though like most people... He wasn't involved in sexual sins like the prostitute had been. He was still just as much a sinner as she was, just as much a debtor to God as she was, just as spiritually corrupt and bankrupt as she was. The only difference was that she recognized her sin and humbled herself before God, Christ, and received his forgiveness. And that's why she loved Jesus. But that wasn't the case with Simon. Only contempt, no honor, no respect, though Jesus was a guest in his home. So, what about you? You sit here, you hear this. Are you like Simon? Thinking that because you're religious, you go to church, that you're not a terrible sinner. You're not as bad as other people. You don't need Christ to forgive you. It's somehow you're not as lowly as the riffraff of society. Are you like the snooty duchess who's offended and insulted when someone tells you, and I quote her words, you're as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. If you are, if you're insulted by that, then you better get a proper view of yourself. You better see yourself as God sees you. He loves you, but you are are a sinner just like the rest of us, and you deserve, just like the rest of us, eternal hell for your sins. And so having established the contrast between this woman and Simon... Jesus continues now speaking to Simon and in doing so folks he states the real heart of the matter as he gives his explanation for why this woman and Simon had two contrasting responses to him. Here's the heart of the matter. Verse 47. For this reason I say to you her sins which are many have been forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little. What a remarkable statement this is by our Lord because it reveals the reason why this woman treated Jesus the way she did. Now, I've said it all along, but here's our Lord giving you his commentary on it. It was because, though she had many, many sins, they had all been forgiven, wiped clear. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removed her sins. And therefore, she just couldn't contain her love for Christ. Likewise, it reveals why Simon didn't love Jesus because though just as sinful as this woman, he never recognized his sinful heart. Therefore, he never sought Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And so he wasn't forgiven just a little. He wasn't forgiven at all. Not at all. Now note this, because this verse is telling us even more 
than that. You see, it isn't simply telling us that those who are forgiven love Jesus. It certainly is telling us that, but it doesn't stop there. That's true, but there's more. In telling us that the way to deepen our love for Jesus and to grow in our love for Jesus, to stir up our love for Jesus, is to recognize how much we have actually been forgiven by Jesus because the more we are aware of our sin and therefore the more we are aware of how much we've been forgiven by God, the more we will love him for it. One of the sad realities of the Christian life, it's a battle we all face, is that at times our love for God, our love for Christ, can diminish and grow cold. This is exactly what happened to an entire church, the church at Ephesus. Our Lord's letter to them in the book of Revelation reveals this. Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now notice Jesus isn't saying that they no longer loved him. These were believers. They loved him. It's impossible for a true believer to stop loving Christ. But rather what he's telling them is that their love for him had just grown cold, stale, routine. In other words, the honeymoon essentially was over because the warmth and excitement and the thrill that they had with him when they were first new Christians, it was now gone. They still diligently served him, he said. They still opposed false teaching and false teachers. They still stood their ground and suffered for Christ. And I would assume that they were very diligent in witnessing for him and speaking to others about him. But Jesus said, you've left me as your first love. Another way of putting this was that their initial passion for Christ was gone. The flame wasn't totally extinguished, but it was certainly burning weak, burning very dimly. Their once bright love for him had been replaced by a cold, routine, unemotional, mechanical form of Christianity. And that can easily happen to us. Very easily happen to us. We can become so busy with life, busy with work, busy with raising our families, busy with school, even busy serving the Lord, doing all kinds of ministries for him but the heart and love that we once had for Christ it just isn't there we just go through the motions so the question is how then if that's the case how then do we return to Christ as our first love how do we rekindle the fire the passion that we once had for Jesus we do this by reminding ourselves of how sinful we really are and therefore how much we've been forgiven by Christ. And the way we remind ourselves of how much we've been forgiven by him is not only thinking about our past lives, as painful as that might be, but we also go back to scripture to see what God says about us before we came to Christ. There's no better place to see this than Ephesians chapter 2. I can't go into all the depth here, but you'll, uh, you'll see enough to be able to see how really wicked you were before you came to Christ. How really wicked all of us were before coming to Christ. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul states that prior to our conversion, we were spiritually dead, meaning we were totally unresponsive 
uninterested in God. We were even hostile towards him. And we proved that we were dead by the way we lived, which Paul articulates in verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that before we were converted, we walked according to the course of this world. Meaning what? Meaning whatever the culture dictated, we believed it. We believed it. We behaved that way. If the culture said this, that's what we did. If the culture said believe this, act this way, that's what we did. And everything involved in this course of behavior and belief was contrary to the ways of God. And the reason for this is that the course of this world is under the control of none other than Satan the devil. Because Paul writes, according to the prince of the power of the air. You see, behind the scenes, Satan controls the values and the ideologies of society. That's why we live in such an insane world these days. And how does he do it? Well, he does it by a host of demons who operate in this world, unseen, invisible to us, but nonetheless, they exist in and around us, and they influence the movers and shakers of society by prompting them and persuading them to embrace all kinds of ungodly beliefs and practices that go against Scripture to the point that the very spirits of men and women, meaning our inner beings, embrace these anti-biblical practices and beliefs too, making their lives characterized by nothing but disobedience to God. And that's exactly what all of us were like before coming to faith in Christ. Now think about this. Think about what you were once like because this is a dismal depiction of you and me, dead in our sins, obeying the dictates of the world, the nonsense, the foolishness of the world, controlled by Satan, disobedient to God. And because of this, we live just horribly in such blatant and utter rebellion towards God. And Paul describes just how badly we lived in verse Three, among them we too all formerly lived, notice all of us without exception, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now, the apostle states that in our past lives prior to our conversion, all of us without exception lived a certain way. He says that we lived in the lusts of our flesh, meaning that we lived with very strong desires, and these strong desires stem from what Paul refers to as the flesh, meaning the corrupt human nature that is opposed to God. See, what Paul wants us to understand is that the reason for our sinful behavior wasn't simply because of outside forces that influenced us. It wasn't simply because the world said do this, or the devil said do this. We behave this way because of the lust of the flesh. The less of our flesh. We were the problem. Not somebody else. We were the problem with our selfish, sinful hearts that desired whatever we thought would make us feel good or advance our cause. And this is how we all lived in total disobedience and disregard to God because our corrupt natures were all about self-centeredness, all about promoting ourselves, all about total self-absorption. Nobody else mattered to us but us. And having stated his case in a broad general way, we lived in the lusts of our flesh. Paul now states two very specific ways that we lived in the lusts of our flesh. And he does this, folks, in order to illustrate just how wicked we really were in the way 
that we live, the lusts of our flesh as they manifested itself in our lives before we were saved. Notice the end of verse 3. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says that the way we lived in the lusts of our flesh was that we indulged in desires having to do with our flesh and mind. What does that mean? Well, the word desires here is a strong word. It's the thought of determination, of unbreakable resolve. A good word for this is driven. Before you were a Christian, you were driven to get exactly what you wanted to get. And what you were driven to get had to do with the desires of your flesh. Meaning in this context, your physical bodies. Before you were saved, there were certain things that your, your body just craved. They were sinful, they were wrong, and I don't need to go into the details. You know exactly what they were. But it wasn't only your body that had these sinful cravings. Paul said it was also the mind. These desires were in the mind. By mind, he means the thoughts, attitudes, affections. In other words, talking about such mental attitudes as pride, jealousy, resentment, hatred, anger, bitterness, malice, wrong values, selfish ambitions, on and on it goes. Listen, what Paul is telling us is before our conversion, we were sinners through and through. Before we were saved, we sinned by letting our bodily desires control us. We sinned by letting our mental desires control us. And why did we live like this? Paul closes verse 3 by telling us, and we're by nature children of wrath. We behave this way because it was our nature to behave this way. We were born like this. We were born with a sinful nature that knew only how to sin and therefore we were the objects of God's wrath. And had he not intervened in our lives, we'd be in hell today. But he did intervene. He saved those who have come to faith in Christ. He saved us. He forgave us. And I think you get the point. Prior to your conversion, you were so sinful, so rebellious, so hateful of God, so that you had so much sin to be forgiven. Think back to what you were before you were saved. I know that can be painful, but only think back in the sense of thinking how much he forgave you. It's too morbid to just think back about your sinful estate, but it's a good thing to think back and then to remember how much Christ has forgiven you. When I consider what a wicked fool I was before my salvation, the way I showed such disrespect to my parents, I really should have been taken out and under Jewish law stoned to death the way I treated them. The way I treated people, the horrible, callous way I spoke to people, my total obsession with myself, it just makes me so grateful and so much in love with Christ because I realize how much he's forgiven me. And that's exactly what you need to do. That's how you stir up love for the Lord. If your love has grown dim, think back to how much he's forgiven you of all of your sin. And that's why this woman in Luke's story expressed such love for Jesus. She knew she had been forgiven. And how wicked she was, but all that had been forgiven. And Jesus affirmed that to her. Notice verse 48. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. You see, the Lord wasn't telling her that he now for the first time forgave her. No, he was just assuring her that she had already been forgiven by him. And that's why she loved him so much. And those who heard him say that, you know, remember, there were other guests there that night at the dinner party. They could only wonder, well, what is he saying? Who is he? Why would he say this? Because we read these words in verse 49. 
those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who, who even forgives sins? Now, they didn't know, but we know the answer. This man is none other than God Almighty in human flesh. And therefore, he has the absolute authority to forgive those who trust him for salvation. And that's why the passage closes with the words of verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She had been saved. She was a believer. Saved from the penalty of her sins. Saved from hell itself. And it was because of the instrument of her faith God had saved her. The sole reason she loved Christ is because he had forgiven her all of her sins. I, I hope that's true of you. I hope that's true of you, that if you know Jesus, that you recognize how much he has forgiven you and you express it to him in the way you love him. Don't be calculating in your love. Be lavish. Be extravagant. That's how he has loved you and forgiven your sins. He, he didn't say, I'm only forgiven 10% of your sins. Thank God for that. And if your love has diminished, then just reflect about how much you owe him in love and gratitude. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you can hear this message and you're not stirred, you have no affection for Jesus, no love for him, just a cold heart, no, no heartfelt thanks, then it's simply because you have never been forgiven by him. So today, trust him. Trust him. Place your confidence in Christ's death alone on the cross as the sole basis for your salvation. Repent of your sin. Forsake it. Turn to Christ. Humble yourself and accept his mercy in paying your debt, the debt of sinners on the cross. And watch how he transforms you into someone who loves him. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors or I, I, I want to even open it up to our elder interns who might be here, then just uh, see me as we close the service. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Fascinating, unique. And Lord, it, it does, it stirs my heart to want to love you more and more when I recognize how sinful I am and how much you've forgiven me. I pray that will be the attitude across the auditorium and people who are watching live stream and who'll be listening online I pray that it will stir us to love you more, Lord, and that you give us wisdom to how we demonstrate and display that love. But I also pray for those who have no love for you, like Simon, self-righteous, look down upon other people, don't think that they're really too bad. I pray that you'll convict them of their sin, that in light of your perfect holiness, they'll come trembling before you, recognizing that you are the Holy One of Israel and that they are lowly sinners who deserve forever to be in hell. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. We pray this all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.